We have now come to the event that the Gospel of Mark has been moving towards. It was a couple of years ago when we started uh, looking at the Gospel in the Gospel of Mark, and everything has been moving toward the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Not only that, this is what the whole of the Bible has been preparing for. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, and God promised that he would send somebody to sort the mess of sin out, this is what the Bible has been moving towards. What happened 2,000 years ago on that Good Friday? And I don't know if you noticed in our studies of Mark, Mark is uh, very uh, dynamic. Uh, he moves from one scene to the next at great speed. But now he slows down. It's in slow motion. Actually, all four Gospels slow down when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we are going to have to slow down as we look at the details here. So what, God willing, uh, I intend doing is just go through the different details and we'll have to break into it Easter time. Uh, there's just too much here to try and combine it with the Easter weekend. So after Easter, we will still be uh, in Good Friday. Uh, but I think Mark is making a big, big uh, emphasis on even the smallest of details. My friends, things that were prophesied centuries before, predicted hundreds of years before, to the tiniest of details, are now being fulfilled. Isn't that significant? The details here contain the very gospel that we need, the good news that saves our immortal souls. Now, how can we look at all these details? Did you notice in our reading the time scale? Verse 25, verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour. Uh, this is not the British uh, time. It's Hebrew time. The third hour is nine o'clock in the morning. And then the next mention we have of the time is in verse 33. The sixth hour. This is when darkness came. The sixth hour. When is that? In the Hebrew timetable, 12 noon. And then when Jesus died and cried out with a loud voice, verse 34, it was the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon in the Hebrew time. So from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon, the greatest things that have ever happened in this whole universe are detailed. And we'll divide into two parts, 
we look at the morning from the third to the sixth hour, from nine till 12. We'll look at the details there. And then we will look at the afternoon from the sixth to the ninth hour, uh, from midday till three o'clock in the afternoon. So we'll just start now looking at three details that happened in the morning. And we're not going to be able uh, to finish this. We'll look at three details today that will lead up to the communion, which will be another remembrance of the crucifixion. And then after Easter, we'll carry on looking at some of the things that happened in the morning of Good Friday. So bear with me as we just concentrate on details. It's going to be a bit different to normal. So the first detail I want us to look at is the place, the place that Jesus was crucified. Golgotha. They brought him, verse 22, to the place Golgotha. What a horrible word. Golgotha. To go from Pilate's judgment hall to Golgotha uh, wasn't a long way. It was called the Via Dolorosa. I don't know how many of you have been to Jerusalem. Uh, the Via Dolorosa is called the Road of Sorrows. And it's a big tourist attraction now. And you've got all these tourist shops lining it. It's really tacky in places, although it does have one of the best coffee shops in Jerusalem. But the Via Dolorosa even though it was only a short route, because Jesus had been flogged, uh, beaten uh, nearly uh, to death, he did not have the physical strength to carry the beam of the cross on which he was going to be hung. So they asked a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to help carry his cross. So here is Jesus helped by Simon, followed by the crowd, being led to Golgotha. Now, what's the meaning of Golgotha? We don't have to look far. We're told the place of the skull. Now, some people think it is called that because the hill looks like a skull. We don't know. We don't know where Golgotha is. It's either Gordon's Calvary, which is the hill that looks like the skull, which is just outside the bus station in Jerusalem, or it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, that's the main tourist attraction. We don't know. But what we do know is this. It was a horrible place. It wasn't within the walls of the city. Uh, the walls of mo modern Jerusalem are extended, so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is inside the walls. But Golgotha was outside the city gates. It was the rubbish dump of Jerusalem. And it stank. And it was the worst part of the city. Now somebody might ask, Pastor, where do we get the word Calvary from then? Not the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? The word Calvary is never used in the Bible. It was used a few centuries later, and it sounds a bit more romantic, doesn't it? Calvary. It sanitizes Golgotha. Golgotha sounds horrible. Calvary doesn't. But my friends, 
It was a horrible place where Jesus was crucified. It is one of my favorite hymns, but there's one word I completely disagree with in the hymn. There is a green hill far away outside the city wall. No, it wasn't a green hill. It was a rubbish dump. It was the place of the skull, either because it looked like it or because of the associations with death. It was definitely not green. Uh, Here is how George MacLeod put it. I, I think this is important. Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles. But on a cross between two thieves, on the town garbage heap, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut. It wasn't clean talk. It was blasphemy. And thieves curse, swear, and soldiers gamble. What a contrast. We have seen again and again, especially in Pilate's judgment hall, who Jesus Christ is. He is the spotless Son of God. I I can't remind you often enough of this. When we fill in our census form and when we say uh, what we are, who we are, then in the end, what it comes down to is this. We are human beings. We are imperfect. But Jesus Christ, he is the perfect man, the spotless one, never committed sin in his life. And at the same time, he's the son of God. He is God himself. And if God was to come down into this world, as he did 2,000 years ago, where did he go on the most climactic day of his life? You would have thought it would have been to the temple or something uh, glorious. Oh no. It was hell on earth. The worst part of Jerusalem. The contrast. The pure, spotless one in this filthy, stinking, horrible place. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ is about to enter our hell. But before that happens, he's actually in a place that's more or less hell on earth. That's the gospel. The good news. Such love. Such love. Where do I find Jesus? You don't go to Jerusalem to become a Christian. Where do I find him? This is how the writer to the Hebrews puts it. Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gates. Therefore let us go by faith to him where outside the camp how do i become a christian i go outside how do i put that in modern english it's a bit like this there is nothing cool about becoming or being a christian if i want to be forgiven if i want to be saved if i want to have a hope For eternity, I must go to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is outside of respectability. I cannot be a Christian and still uh, be proud of myself. 
if I want to be a Christian, I have to go outside of religiosity. That's not the same as Christianity, you know, religiosity. When we are religious as I was when I grew up, we depend on our religious works for acceptance with God. But when we are saved, we denounce that and we go outside of religion. Are you ready to bear the reproach of Christ? What is that? The stigma. Uh, You know, some mystics uh, centuries ago, they had stigmata, didn't they, apparently? Uh, They had uh, uh, the holes uh, and the blood in their hands where Jesus was nailed. That's called the stigmata. And from that word comes the stigma of uh, Christianity. And in a way, we don't have to have a physical stigmata. It's the spiritual mark of going outside the camp to Jesus Christ. We've lost the stigma of becoming Christians and being Christians. Even when I was in university, the Christians were called the God Squad as a term of derision. Where is that now? The stigma. In Revelation, we've been looking at churches who are persecuted. That's what happens even today when there is opposition. You don't have Christianity in the official church often. You have the church outside of religion, the underground church. And if that happens to us, then so be it. We are following in the path of our Saviour. So the place, Golgotha, not Calvary, a horrible place, outside, outside. Can I ask you, do you feel like an outsider in this world? I don't belong here. I used to. It's not that I want to be out of it. I'm part of it. And yet, I'm now different because I am Christ's. I'm an alien here. Heaven is my home. I'm an outsider. The place. And then the method. The method. It's spoken twice. They brought him, verse 22, to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. And what did they do? They crucified him. Verse 24. And then it's repeated again in verse 25. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. That's all. If you search the other Gospels, you don't get much more detail as to the method of crucifixion. Now, why am I emphasizing that? I'm saying it's for this reason. I think we sometimes mistakenly try to get something of the gruesomeness of crucifixion, into our minds and our hearts, so that it will have an effect upon us. But I don't think God wants us to just have an emotional response to the cross. Do you remember the film that came out many years ago now, directed by Mel Gibson, on the crucifixion? And it went to great lengths to depict the horrors, the physical horrors of crucifixion. I think Mark, on purpose, doesn't go much into those details. 
Because it's the spiritual horrors that we need to be moved with. But I do need to mention one or two things about crucifixion. If we're looking at the method, it's the worst method of execution ever devised by man. Do you know, in polite society, you never mentioned the word crucifixion? It was a taboo word uh, in the cancel culture of the day. If you mentioned crucifixion, that was the end of your career. Uh, there is uh, an account of a playwright who happened to mention crucifixion in his play, and the critics lambasted him. There's nothing new about cancel culture. This is how one commentator puts it. I must be careful I don't go into the gruesome details, but just to make us aware of how physically uh, cruel it was. Death by crucifixion was slow and excruciatingly painful, and it was as physically painful for Jesus as it would have been for anyone. He was nailed to a rough piece of wood. Church council, did you hear that? A rough piece of wood. It wasn't a straight cross. We were having a discussion on Tuesday night as to whether the cross was straight. It wasn't. It was a rough, hewn piece of wood. And he was nailed to it with not little nails, but with heavy spikes. And they went through his hands and feet so that they bled copiously. And the people crucified were left to hang, or as this commentator says, to dangle on the cross. And they would die of exposure, of asphyxia. Every time they needed breath, they would have to rise up and in excruciating pain. And even loss of blood would sometimes cause death. And death would take hours and hours. The flies, the stink. It was gruesome. But this is what I want to say as to the method. My friend, how do I know if Jesus Christ loves a sinner like me? This is how I know. He humbled himself, even unto death, even the death of the cross. He went so low in loving you and me, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards. That's amazing love. For the Jew, right? It was an offence that one who had been crucified should be the one that is proclaimed as saviour. It was an offence. And for the sophisticated Greek and Roman, it, it was ridiculous, ridiculous. And yet this is the gospel and this is the love of God toward us. That it was in weakness, in shame, in pain, that his salvation comes to us. And that's because he loves us. He loves us. That Jesus was willing to go through with that. And we haven't even come to the spiritual suffering. There is an interesting detail here as we consider the method. They offered him wine mingled with myrrh. Verse 23, 
this was to anaesthetize the victim, to lessen the pain. But notice, Jesus refused. He refused to take an anaesthetic. Why? Well, even today, if a person is on the job, he doesn't drink, does he? He's got to be in control. Do you know what? Jesus here was still on the job. Actually, he was fulfilling the most important part of his mission. This was the climax of his work. And uh, even in this gospel, but especially in uh, Luke and John, he was still witnessing to people. Uh, he was praying that God would forgive the people what they were doing. He was uh, making sure that his earthly uh, relations were being looked after. He was even witnessing to one of the thieves that were crucified next to him. He was still working. But more than that, he had to be in control because here he was actually fulfilling what God the Father had given him to do. Oh, uh, he had to taste death for you and for me. It was no good for him to be anaesthetized from that. He had to taste the bitter dregs of your sin and mine. He had to drink the cup of the wrath of God. He had to feel the utter horror of it. And he had to taste the separation of death. I can't imagine the pain that he felt in refusing to be anaesthetized. There's a hymn. We have to be careful with some of these hymns because they can overly focus on the sufferings. But I think this hymn helps. Behold, look, look. With faith, look. The amazing sights. This horrible place. The Savior lifted high. The Son of God. His soul's delight expires, dies in agony. He's feeling it. For who, for who, my heart, were all these sorrows, something felt, born? Why did he feel the piercing smarts, the spear going inside of him, the crown of thorns upon his head, and the nails on his feet and in his hands? Why did he feel and wear the crown of thorns? And the only conclusion is this. Just two words, really. We'll be remembering them in the communion. For us. <laughs> yes. For me. For you. For us in love he bled. For us in anguish died. The method. The most cruel execution ever devised by man, the Son of God endured for you and for me. And then one more detail, one more detail. The soldiers, the soldiers. When a victim was hung on the cross, he was stripped naked. That needs to be emphasised. And so the soldiers strip Jesus Christ of his clothes. But 
This is fulfilling prophecy. I read right at the start of the service some words from Psalm 22. David there was predicting that the soldiers would gamble for his clothes, cast lots for them. But this is what I want us to look at. He was stripped, right? He was hanging naked on the cross. And incidentally, by that, we mean that the soldiers were abusing him. The, the soldiers would abuse these victims as they were hanging naked. They would even uh, be sadistic, uh, be violent in what they said and done. And for the Son of God to have to go through that is incredible. But this is the gospel, right? There's a shame to nakedness in the Bible. Why? When our first parents were in paradise, when it was perfect, they were naked and they were not ashamed of it. The first sign that things were wrong after they disobeyed God, after the fall happened, was this. They were aware that they were naked and they felt ashamed. It was as if uh, their sinful heart was now lying open to the holiness of God. And we know the story, don't we? They tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves and it was completely pathetic. And so Jesus is coming. This is the gospel. I keep on using this word Sunday morning after Sunday morning because this is the crux of the gospel substitution right Jesus is coming as our substitutes and so where Adam in paradise and we are represented by Adam where he fell and the shame of nakedness was one of the results of that the second Adam or the last Adam because he's not going to have to do it again Jesus Christ comes and what does he do on the cross he becomes a substitute what does that mean it means that the shame the nakedness of Adam and of ourselves is being put to Jesus's accounts uh, what, what did the hymnist say one of my favorite lines bearing what shame And scoffing, rude. That's a mild word. It was abuse. Why? Substitution in my place. Condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. What a saviour. All our nakedness, all of our shame, all of our sin is transferred to him. And then there is something else here, isn't there? Uh, John Calvin puts it brilliantly. Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with his righteousness. The soldiers uh, divide Jesus' clothes among themselves and then they come to his tunic, the robe, and they discover that this robe is uh, uh, woven uh, by... Um, uh, let me get it right. I'm not a tailor... Uh, uh, let me just see what I've written down here. They discovered it was a seamless robe, woven from top to bottom in one piece. A seamless robe. They couldn't divide it. A seamless robe. 
So they cast lots for it. What a beautiful picture. Our nakedness, our sin is transferred to Christ. And his seamless robe of righteousness is put into our accounts. You know, there was something sad about Adam and Eve trying to cover their sin and their shame and their nakedness with fig leaves. And that is a picture of people, maybe you, uh, today, trying to cover up your sin with religiosity or with good works. My friends, you've just got fig leaves. You're never going to cover your uh, nakedness. And one day, you will have to stand before God, fully exposed, and your fig leaf righteousness will be no good. It will shrivel away. But this is the gospel. The gospel tells us it is not through works which we have done, but it is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we are saved. And just as God took away the fig leaves of our first parents and clothed them himself, so on the cross, Jesus takes our nakedness and he clothes us with his seamless robe of righteousness. What does that mean? It's been woven in love. His active obedience was in love. He was building up a righteousness for you and me when he was here on earth. He was weaving good works, perfection, so that he could give it to us. We've fallen. He never fell. We failed to love one another. He never failed. He loved his enemies, as he was doing now. We fail miserably to love God. He, every moment, loved his God with all his heart. And he wasn't doing that for himself. He was weaving a righteousness for you and for me. Wonderful, wonderful. Do you, do you know what, my friends? It was woven especially by his passive obedience on the cross, woven in blood, this robe of righteousness is a scarlet robe because it's dyed in his precious blood. And you know what? There's not one man-made fiber in it. It is 100% divine, 100% of Christ's righteousness, 100%. And he gives it to us as a free gift. There's a hymn in our supplements by somebody who used to worship in the church. I think this person is somewhere in Derbyshire now. Hilary, uh, Hilary she's called. She wrote, The robe of righteousness I wear was bought, dear Lord, by thee. Thy suffering, broken body, bearing in shame on Calvary's tree. What a cost. What a price. So that we, sinners, could be clothed. Have you become a Christian? Have you renounced your fig leaf righteousness? Have you come to the place where you admit that you're a sinner Whatever, whatever your sins may be, in a sense, it doesn't matter what the sins are. They can be respectable sins. They can be way out sins. The fact is this, we're sinners. 
we're naked spiritually. We're filthy spiritually. And it's impossible for a person to confess that unless the Spirit of God shows it to them. And so I'm asking you, I'm asking myself, do we realize that we are sinners in me? There's no good. I've tried religion. I've tried good works. And it doesn't do any good. It's filthy before God. And what do I do? I come, as the hymnist says, naked, spiritually naked, to thee for dress. Praise be to him. He forgives unworthy, unlovable sinners, and he clothes us with his righteousness. I just want to, as I come to a conclusion, uh, give a true story. I think it would be good for us as a church to read Phil Riken Living the Way Jesus Loves. It's a series on 1 Corinthians 13. I think this should be compulsory reading uh, for us as a church at this moment. And Riken gives this true account of what happened to Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy in a Nazi concentration camp. If you think uh, of Calvary, I'm using the wrong word already, aren't I? Golgotha as a horrible place. It was like a Nazi concentration camp. And every Friday they had to stand in line for their medical inspection and they had to stand naked, a shame of it all. And the soldiers, the Nazi soldiers, would be making uh, unclean remarks. And this is how she puts it. Corrie ten Boom. I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings had faces and voices. Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. Naked, we had to stand, hands at sides position, as we filed slowly past a group of grinning guards. But it was one of those mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on that cross. I had not known, I had not thought. The paintings, the carved crucifixes showed at the least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, 2,000 years ago, there had been no reverence, no more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned toward Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blade stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corrie, and I never thanked him. I never thanked him. Have you ever thanked him for bearing your shame? For taking your sin upon himself and giving to you his seamless robe of righteousness so that you could be forgiven? We have been greatly loved and if you are not yet a Christian, oh, come to him. What's stopping you? 
he loves those who don't deserve it. That's what we were all like. And even though we go to him outside the camp, oh, my friend, that garbage heap, that smelly, shameful place can become the most beautiful place in the world because there the Son of God expires in agony for my sin so that I might be forgiven. My heart, can you say this as I conclude, my heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me with his lights and wrote his law of righteousness with power upon my hearts. We're going to prepare ourselves now to remember what he did further on the cross in the communion by singing together. And maybe we'll remain seated as we sing from our hearts and remind ourselves of the spiritual sufferings. Man of sorrows, what a name for the spotless Lamb of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour.
Heavenly Father, we praise Thee for our Saviour, that He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and that He tasted not just death, but the horrors of hell, so that we could be delivered and be given eternal life. And we thank Thee, Father, that whatever reproach we have to bear in following thy son, that we have in him a great high priest who can be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. We thank thee that even those who are grieving now can be comforted by one who knows exactly what it's like. Father, we just praise thee for our Jesus and we just don't know what we do without him. And just open our eyes and touch our hearts as we come now to this thy table. Father, we don't just want an emotional response. We want a response produced by thy spirit uh, so that we truly uh, grieve and turn to thee uh, afresh. Uh, oh Lord, hear us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.